So with that, let's pray, and we'll get into today's passage. Father, we do thank you and praise you uh, for this day. We thank you for our relationship with you uh, through Christ and his sacrifice. We thank you that you, um, you provided a way that we could be restored to you. And so, Father, for those here that maybe don't have a relationship with Christ, Father, I pray that you would move into their, in their hearts so that they uh, could respond to you and they could retur- receive eternal life, that they would have this relationship that we are going to speak of today. Uh, for those of us who have called you Lord, I ask that you would move um, through your passage today. May your spirit illuminate the meaning that we would rightly understand what was being said what was intended then and how it applies to us this day. Father, we ask that you would calm our minds, help us to focus and not be distracted by the world around us, but that we would uh, be able to come to your word uh, with a mind that is engaged in listening and thinking and examining the text before us. We ask that your spirit would move in our hearts, uh, that we would be convicted, um, that we would... um, see how we can grow in our relationship with you. We ask that you would show us things that are hindering our walk with you. Show us things that we're not doing that, are, uh, that we could be doing to increase um, our relationship with you. Father, we thank you that you're a loving God. We thank you that you're a God who guides us, leads us, um, just watches over us. And so, Father, we ask that you would um, just move as we study the scripture today. And it's in Christ's good name we pray. Amen. First Timothy, chapter four, verse seven. But have nothing to do with worldly fables, fit only for old women. On the other hand, discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness, for bodily discipline is a, only is only of little profit, but godliness is profitable for all things, since it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. It is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance. For it is for this we labor and strive because we have fixed our hope on the living God who is the Savior of all men, especially of believers. Prescribe and teach these things. Father, we thank you for your word. Guide us now. And it's in Christ's good name we pray. Amen. All right, so as we uh, continue with our study in verse 7, we're we're immediately hit with one word, but. But is sort of a, it's a trigger in the scriptures. We have to see, well, um, what are we entering in? This was a letter from Paul to Timothy. Timothy would read it straight through. We kind of take a few lines at a time, week by week, and so it's easy to, uh, to forget what's been said. And so if we back up to verse 1 of chapter 4, we get another but. But I'm not going to keep backing up to all the buts to do the whole book over again. Uh, we'll stop at that but. Yeah. But the verse right before that, he says, By common confession, great is the mystery of godliness. He lays out the gospel just to cover a little bit. But the Spirit says explicitly in latter, latter times that some will fall away from the faith. And so Paul Uh, Last week we looked at that he gave young Timothy this warning as a pastor that as you teach, as you lead, there will be some that you know who fall by the wayside. The word for fall away is literally apostasy. 
And so he says, don't, don't let it get to you. Know that it will happen. Know that there will be some who fall away. He, he says, these people who fall away, they're going to pay attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons. And don't get to your mind that there are guys with horns on their heads that are teaching. These are guys that are slick, articulate, well-spoken, but they are detached from the Word of God. And he says, these, these teachers, they have become liars. They've gone down this road so long that, that, their, that their consciences, or wherever your conscience is in your body, what God has given to sort of keep us on track is like a branding iron has been placed on it so that your, their consciences are, are cauterized, they're seared, they're no longer reliable. And they began teaching that you shouldn't participate in marriage. You shouldn't participate in uh, eating certain types of food. And Paul reminds Timothy, don't, don't get carried away with these guys. Um, in verse 6, skipping down, he says, In pointing out these things to the brethren, you'll be a good servant of Christ Jesus, constantly nourished by the words of the faith, and of the sound doctrine which you have been following. And the part that I skipped over was sort of the antidote. What he tells Timothy, he, he says these things, marriage and food, these are things that God created uh, for, for us to enjoy, that we should have gratitude, that we serve a good God who loves us and cares for us and has given us things to enjoy. And it's from this that we come to the but in verse 7. <clears throat> but have nothing to do with worldly fables fit only for old women. And I realize immediately I'm going to hear from, about this one. I'm going to get in trouble. Anytime I mention age and women, I get in trouble. I want to point out that this is not my words. <laughs> I, uh, I talked to Anna, you know, last night and kind of going over, and she's like, oh, is this like an old, like, old wives' tale? I'm like, well, what do you mean? And she's like, well, my grandmother, you know, if you had a sty in your eye, she'd say, take your wedding band, make it get really hot, put it on your eye, and, uh, and it would heal. I'm like, no, 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 that, that, see, that's practical. That's, like, that, that would be in a good sense. Uh, no, no matter how I try to soften the blow of this, this is something bad. It was understood as bad, like the things that they understood, and and instead of digging myself a hole, teaching about how they thought, and, and because of the system back then, um, I'm just going to opt to read out the ESV because I think they translate the, the heart of it really well. They, they write concerning this, have nothing to do with irrever irreverent, silly myths. And so this, this teaching was divorced from sound doctrine, sound teaching of the scriptures, silliness, um, Things that you shouldn't get wrapped around. And, and I, and I want to cautious teasing Christians today, but there are a lot of Christians today who, who get caught up following things that, that probably they'd be better served not following. There's a lot of emails circulating about stuff, and it's like just what he's getting at is what does the Word of God say? Focus on the Word. Stay, stay there. Grow. Um, don't get off on rabbit trails. Let the word of God speak. This is my passion, that, that my place in this spot 
Like I love a whole lot of other things, like I, but from this place, the focus will be that the word of God is taught. And he's encouraging Timothy to, to stay in the word. Don't, don't get led astray by various teachings and fables and myths. He says, on the other hand, and discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. I don't know about you guys, but anytime I see on the other hand, what do you guys think of? I think of Fiddler on the Roof. <laughs> you know, the dad with his daughter, he's like, well, on the one hand, but on the other hand. And then he gets to the third daughter, he's like, on the other hand, there is no other hand. <laughs> but in this case, this is another hand that's okay. So on the one hand, we have the fables. Don't go down there. Uh, on the other hand, discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. And today's message, the first message was short. I want to tell you guys today's message is short, but you can't ever trust the pastor when he says that. I can't even, I don't know. Should be shorter. If you get one thing of today's passage, everything about today's, however many verses there are, if you walk away with one thing, the instruction, the admonition here is to discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. Period. Everything about this ties back to that point. Discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. Building from that, he says, for bodily discipline is of only little profit, but godliness is profitable for all things since it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. So we're to discipline ourselves for the purpose of godliness. Um, So often, or maybe in joking around, or maybe just my wife teasing me, you know, we first got married, and I was like, hey, Anna, I want to go running. She's like, bodily exercise of little value, son. You know, kind of like teasing me. And it was always in jest. And this isn't saying that exercise or caring for your body is a bad thing. Like that we have, we have uh, God has given us our bodies, and I think there's something for stewardship. What, what he's saying is that, ex- that, that uh, uh, bodily discipline, it, it, it is of profit. But he's using it. As, as an illustration to launch onto spiritual disciplines. And so we all can relate that bodily discipline is of benefit. But in contrast to spiritual things, it really is minimal. But in order to paint the picture of how important spiritual discipline is, he's going to take something that we know uh, bodily discipline, something that we can look at and see the, the zeal, the zest of competitors, athletes, and we're going to look to their example, and then we're going to use their example to see how we can follow Christ in pursuing godliness, disciplining ourselves for godliness. This word discipline is a Greek word that we get the word gymnasium from. In this location, which the original audience would have understood is the word gymnasium as it was used is would would be connected to the games of the day that have been sort of born into the Olympics that we celebrate today. Um, So discipline, gymnasium, a place that stinks, is sweaty, pungent, I think is a good word for gyms, or maybe that's the military ones. But it's a place that you can smell the hard work, you can smell the effort that's been put into it. When I think about the Olympics, I because from this word you can't divorce this word from the the origin of the games where the Olympics have come from. I always remember the opportunity that I had in a couple different contexts to work with Olympic athletes, or I I really should say Olympic hopefuls, 
Some of them were, but they're very, unless you went to the games, you're not an Olympic athlete. If you're at the Olympic Training Center, but you haven't been, you're not. And those that have been are, and those who have medals, they're the true <laughs> athletes. And so in this window of my life, I, I forget the order that it happened, but I remember being a SEAL instructor and I was at first phase and we were approached by this psychologist of, of the Chula Vista um, Olympic Training Center and he said, you know, our athletes are a bunch of prima donnas. They've always been so gifted and so talented. They put the hard work in, but they've never had to learn um, sort of resiliency of their minds and, and being able to persevere in the midst, uh, in the midst of uh, difficulty. So we'd like to approach you guys to see if you'd be okay with us sending Olympians to your training facility so you guys could teach them this. Well, boy, would we be okay with that, you know? And, and so I'll never, we, the first group of guys that I met was the men, the U.S. men's Olympic bobsled team. We're kind of looking like, you guys ride in a go-kart down a hill. How hard is this? Like, you know, we're looking at them and, so he said, well, you guys are winners. Let's give you guys some cold. And so we did surf passage with them and did some other things that was not pleasant for them, but very entertaining for us. And then I, I remember like bringing them in from the surf zone and we let them use the instructor's uh, changing room because they were Olympic athletes, of course. They're like, oh, look at this. I'm like, you guys are winter Olympians. Well, how are you shivering? You're wearing sunny San Diego. They're like, it's very different what we do. Like, we're not used to the cold. <laughs> it's like, okay, guys. And then from that, there was another girl. Um, she was a, a, a 400-meter hurdler, and she was a strong believer, and a group of them were believers, and they invited uh, my father-in-law and I to come participate in a Bible study down at the Olympic Training Center. And so we went down to this training center a couple times, and I, I, what, I, what I came to learn is I really loved the the food there. At first it was free. And it was like this cafeteria where you could get from, I'm trying to think of healthy food, like, you know, vegetables that were steamed and like fish that was broiled and other healthy stuff to like, to the double bacon greasy burger with all the cheese and fries with chili and cookies, like it was the full range of food. And so they'd invite us for dinner before we go to Bible study, and I would just go binge. I'm like, this is all free. Like, I want that, I want that, I want that. And we'd sit down, and I'd sit down with Tanisha, who was the, the ho- Olympic hopeful, and, and I look at her meal, and she's got like plain spinach, water, stuff, like stuff that I was like, Tanisha, why don't you... Uh, why don't you uh, participate? Like, you're an Olympic athlete. You're entitled to this. I'm not even entitled to this. She's like, this is all for like the shot putters and stuff. Like, we sprinters, we have to be very disciplined. We, they can eat whatever we want. And, uh, and uh, so I'm blown away about the discipline. We go into the Bible, so we start seeing about their, their lifestyle. And, and, and you don't make it to that level without being extremely disciplined. Uh, I mean, that's, you could say, Doug Gunner. They, they monitor their sleep. They monitor what goes into their bodies. They, their, their training regime is, is managed by, by a team of, you know, 10 to 20 people. They have psychologists 
They have doctors. They have chiropractors just sort of laying around ready to like do whatever to them. It's everything. These athletes have given every last dime that they can get to be there. And their whole everything revolves around the potential of going to this event four years away. And I laugh at myself this week as I got stuck in a lobby somewhere and I'm watching curling going, how hard can that be? <laughs> like, I, I've been meaning to research how hard it is, but I imagine that those guys have been doing whatever they do. <laughs> I haven't figured that part out yet. I recognize that my statement is just like a, a lack of understanding. But they're, they're committed. And, and this, this idea is the word that's used for discipline yourself for the sake or the purpose of godliness. And really there's, there's two words there. There's discipline, gymnasium, and for the purpose of godliness is just one word. And it's the, the word I'm going to say, it is Eusebia. And some of you that may follow soccer or football is the right way to say it. I know my wife is here, so I know there's one. I know Barry's here. I know he likes football. You may recognize the name Eusebio. Eusebio is, is, is thought to be the, the second greatest soccer player of all time next to Pele. <clears throat> His name is fascinating. It's from this word godliness. And when I studied this, I like sent my brother, my Anna's brothers a text saying, hey, do you know this about Eusebio, his name? He's, he's the second greatest soccer player of all time. And then it's all, well, that depends on who you ask, Gunnar. And I'm like, no, no, but check this out. Eusebio is the Greek word godliness, for the purpose of godliness. His parents named him Eusebio because when he was born, they wanted to dedicate this child and their prayer for him is that he would dedicate his life to the pursuit of godliness. Now, I don't know if he lived, like he certainly attained greatness on the soccer field. I have no idea his spiritual life. But there was something about that story when the challenge of this is discipline yourself for the pursuit of godliness. So the first question we have to ask is like, what is godliness? This is a word that Christians throw around. Um, we hear all the time, but I don't, I don't know that I could easily define this word. Like I can now because I've studied this week and I'm going to tell you something here. You can look through all commentators and there's elaborate definitions. The best that I found is Charles Swindoll because it's just sweet and to the point and it's easy to memorize. He defines godliness as this, taking God seriously. It's that simple. Discipline yourself for the purpose of taking God seriously. This word has captivated me this, this week this, this, because it's like if I'm supposed to teach and encourage you all to discipline yourselves for the pursuit of godliness, what does it mean? And I've covered that, taking God seriously. And then how is it used in the New Testament or, or, or beyond the New Testament, in the Old Testament even, through the Septuagint? It's fascinating to me that this word, uh, Eusebio, is only used 15 times in the whole New Testament. Ten of them are used by Paul. 
And Paul uses them exclusively within 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus in the pastoral epistles. There's a couple leftovers that Peter uses in, in challenging Christ's followers to take God seriously. And so I'm not going to go all of the, over all of them, but within the First Timothy, it's worth our while to, to look at this. How, since this is a word that Paul has used within First Timothy, let's see, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. I think it's seven times is in First Timothy. So let's look at these times to get a, a, a picture of how God has used this term. So go back with me to, uh, well, we're in First Timothy chapter 2, verse 2. We all know this one, where Paul says, first of all, then I urge that entreaties and prayers and petitions and thanksgivings be made on behalf of all men for kings and all who are in authority. So he says, pray for those in authority. And the reason that we want to pray for those authority, though anybody from, from law enforcement to uh, politicians locally to the state level to the federal level to the worldwide level, we're to pray for these people so that we may lead tranquil and quiet lives in all godliness. So that we pray for them so this umbrella would be around us that would give us the freedom to live our lives in a way that we can take God seriously. And when I look at the world and the world state and situation, um, we as Americans have it so good. Like, we, we have this. We live in a nation where we're free to worship, where we're free to study the Word of God, where we're free to pray, where we're free to exercise our faith. And yet so many of us don't. And I'm preaching it myself. We live in an environment, even in the persecution that's here, our persecution isn't really persecution by by worldly standards. We live in an environment where we are able to pursue godliness, where we are able to take God seriously and to live it out. Um, the next one, just down the page a little bit, is which sort of started off our section, verse 16 in chapter 3, by common confession, great is the mystery of godliness, and the gospel is sort of presented in this, this early church hymn or doxology or poem. They don't, we don't really know. But great is the mystery of godliness of this, this uh, you know, the, the taking God seriously. There's, there's a mystery to the gospel that God became man, that he lived a perfect life, that he went to the cross as our substitute. Like, if that's not a mystery, I don't know what is. Um, then we have our passage, but if we skip to the end, uh, the last few all sort of fit together in chapter 6, verses 3 through 6. The word appears three times in this section. And he says in chapter 6, verse 3, if anyone advocates a different doctrine and does not agree with sound words, those of our Lord Jesus Christ and with the doctrine conforming to godliness, he is conceited and has understood nothing, but he has a morbid interest in controversial questions and disputes about words out of which arise envy, strife, abusive language, evil suspicions, and constant friction between men and depraved mind, and, men of depraved mind and depraved of the truth, who suppose that here's the word godliness is a means of gain. 
But godliness actually is a means of great gain when accompanied by contentment. So this is a word that Paul, you can go back to chapter 4. And so when we see this in our section today twice, but have nothing to do with worldly fables, verse 7, fit only for old women. On the other hand, discipline yourself for the purpose of taking God seriously. For bodily discipline is of little profit, but godliness, taking God seriously, is profitable for all things since it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. Living for God benefits you in this life and it also has benefits beyond. Um, Verse 9 says it's a trustworthy statement. Paul, I think, uses five of these in his letters of Timothy. These are sort of like, Timothy, this is really important. This is something that you need to focus on. So when we come to verse 19 and we read, it is a trustworthy statement, What's the statement that he's referring to? Is it about to come or has it already happened? The answer is it's already happened. It goes back to that verse 7. Discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. That is a trustworthy statement that that we need to be disciplining ourselves. The, The gymnasium for taking God seriously that we should, as followers of Christ, commit our lives to him and to following after him and to not just let it be something that you do on Sundays. There's a lot of quotes from Charles Swindoll I like, but in one of his books, I, I think it was on his book on Philippians, Laugh Again, which is, has the greatest picture on the back. I think we keep the book only for the book cover. There's a picture of he and his wife, probably about 70 years old, sitting on a Harley just cracking up, you know? And it's about Philippians, Laugh Again. And he says... It's shameful that Christians walk around acting like they've been baptized in lemon juice. I know I say that all the time, but it's true. Like, God wants us to have joy. He wants us to enjoy life. And pursuing godliness, taking God seriously, doesn't mean that life isn't fun. Living apart from God, that's not fun. Before I came to Christ, I thought drinking having a crazy life. I I thought that was enjoyment, but it only led to destruction and sorrow and really a lot of pain in my life and a bunch of wasted money, which is, I guess that could be included in that. But then coming to Christ and living for him to see the the joy, true happiness and love and and fun that, that, that words fall short of. And so he says this for... For it, disciplining ourselves for the purpose of godliness, it is for, for it is for this that we labor and strive. Think of the Olympic athlete. We're laboring and striving, pursuing godliness, pursuing, taking God seriously. It says we have fixed our hope on the living God. This uh, having fixed our hope, I thought there might be something in the English word fixed. I was like, kind of like, oh, is there something there like an anchor? We anchor us up. The reality is that that those words in the English, uh, we have fixed our hope. It's one word, and the word that's emphasized, the word that there is, is hope. That we place our hope in the living God. I started thinking to myself, well, if we're placing our hope, if we're fixing our hope on the living God, what, what, how do we do this? What, what things are we staking our lives and our souls and eternity on? Started whipping up, like the first off, that he is. 
Like, I'm staking my hope that God exists. When I look around at creation, it's just, it just didn't happen. Like, seeing the, the process of a child being born, like, how did that happen? And I'm not asking how it happened. I'm, I, I'm, there's always a bunch of sarcastic people. It, it, the fact that life comes out of really nothingness. Like, how did that happen? How is it that my children carry my and my wife's DNA and they see these little images? How is it that we look out into space and the vastness of everything? How is it that there's life here? Oh, it's just everything lined up for the collision and it's like that. Just tell you what, if you believe that, you have way more faith than I have believing that God spoke it into existence. That, I mean, that's fix my hope on the on the truth that God loves me? That Jesus died for me? That he forgave me? That he, this creator of the universe who spoke all things into existence, that he is actively involved in my life? And that he's sovereign, which he reigns and rules over all things, both bad and good in my life? So that when I'm experiencing trials, like as much as I pray for healing and all like we want health, wealth, prosperity, we, like, we want all that stuff, of course. But there's a certain sort of peace that comes from the sovereignty of God that in the midst of this God, even if you don't take this from me, I know you're in control and I know you're doing something through this pain, this sorrow, this agony that I'm feeling that I can't figure out what it is, but I trust that you're doing something within me or for somebody else through my display that I can trust you in the midst of it. We're probably just as hard to trust in God when everything else is going right because we tend, when everything is going right, we tend to leave him in the rearview mirror. And so I would suggest that we all, even when we're being blessed, we need to keep God in the, the center of our lives because so often what happens is when we're blessed, we take our eyes off of him and put it on the blessing and the blessing becomes the idol so that if it's taken away, our whole world falls apart. But if we have our eyes on God like Job did, we can truly say, the Lord gives, the Lord takes, blessed be his name. Where was I on my list? He has a plan for me that he's called me into service, that I am secure beyond this life, that he's coming again. These are, these are all things that we, we have fixed our hope on this living God based on the word of God that he said certain things that I can't see, that I can't necessarily prove, but that I fix my, my, myself and placing my hope in him. That he's faithful, he's true, he will follow through with all of these things. And I think in the midst of all of this, what Paul wants Timothy to do and what Paul wants Timothy to prescribe and teach, which is the very end in verse 11, what he wants more than anything is for people to take God seriously, which means um, they have like a reckoning with him. And I don't know if you've had a reckoning with God, but I'm so grateful for between 1996 and 1999, it was my reckoning years. Started with a resisting evading arrest as I had just become a Navy SEAL, which led to my losing my security clearance. And if you don't have your security clearance, you can't be a Navy SEAL. So at 19 to 21 years old, my, I think that was the age, my whole world was taken apart. 
And then all of a sudden, the gospel in all of its radiance was displayed to me through a friend that wouldn't give up and kept nagging me over the course of that three years. And I finally surrendered. But surrender didn't mean that everything worked out well or that I was suddenly transformed. But through that process, God began to work until the very end of it. I believe in 1999, I had a reckoning with God. I realized that now that I had trusted in him, I had remained a hypocrite, meaning I was, le- I was leaving, living two lives. I was hitting up all the bars during the week, but I'd make it to Sunday night church. And then my best friend who wasn't a believer basically stabbed me in the back, uh, not literally, but he challenged me on my faith, not even knowing that he was doing it, and I was so convicted. And at that moment, I basically fell on my face before the Lord and said, Lord, I can't do this, and I need you to do it. But I sort of like walked away. I said, I throw in the towel. I'm going to stop trying. I want what's here. But I can't seem to figure out how to make it work. So I'm just going to kind of like, I'm going to go on my way. But if you're real, you make all this happen. And as I look back on my life, that was the, turn, that was the, that was the point that God began to really get a hold of me. That, that was during that window that I was committed to being at church on Sundays. I don't come to church on Sundays because I'm a pastor come to church on Sundays because I'm a Christian and I'm committed to following after him. During that window, I was committed to, Lord, I need to be in in a Bible study during the week. I need to be in accountability because I can't trust my flesh. So I participate in small groups at the church, not because I'm a pastor, but because I need it. And I'm not this isn't like an altar call for you guys to get involved in all this stuff. This is, me, this is me sharing that my reckoning moment that set the course of my life in a new direction. And I think that's what Paul wants, that he, he wants young Timothy to impress upon the people that they need to discipline themselves for the pursuit of godliness. Discipline, gymnasium, Pursuit of godliness, pursuit of taking God seriously. And he says, who is the savior of all men, especially of believers. And some of us will suddenly wrap our minds around this and get, get all sort of up, bent up in knots. Say, who is the savior of all men? How can that be? That's not true. That can't. This isn't speaking of universalism, and if you don't know what universalism is, don't worry about it. But for the three of you who are concerned about universalism, this isn't, he's not promoting universalism. That basically, if you exist, well, I said don't worry about it, I'm going to basically let you worry about it. Universalism is basically at every funeral that happens, just about everywhere, you know, somebody dies. And what does the world say? Well, he's in a better place now. Doesn't matter what the individual professed. Didn't matter what he said or thought. We say he's in a better place. He died, so therefore he's with God. That's not what the Bible teaches. And this isn't what's being taught here. Universalism basically says that universally all men are saved. And they would point to this verse, who is the Savior of all men. This isn't what Paul is saying. He's saying that Jesus died for all. And if you'll turn with me to 2 Peter 2.1, I'll show you kind of like a one point. In 2 Peter 2.1, Peter is addressing problems. 
Seems like most of the Bible is addressing problems. <clears throat> church would be so much easier if uh, church life, you know, uh, not the, the would be so much easier if people weren't in it. But because there's people, we're all sinners and we create problems and thus doctrines are born to kind of keep us on track. And so in 2 Peter 2, when Paul, or P- Peter writes, but false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will also be false teachers among you who will secretly introduce destructive heresies. Okay, these are not believers. These are people who are opposed to the gospel. And it says, even denying the master who bought them, bringing swift destruction upon themselves. So you can go back to Timothy. And so when Paul writes, who is the savior of all men, I, I believe that what Paul is saying is that on that cross, as the wrath of God was poured out on Jesus, it was for all the sin of all time and Jesus' death on the cross created a way, the way, for any human to be reconciled to God. Because he doesn't stop there. Who's the Savior of all men? But he says, especially of believers. And that's what Ephesians 1.13 says. That at, when you've heard the gospel, at the moment of belief, you are then sealed by the Holy Spirit. And it goes on to say, until the day of redemption, that you're secure, that the transaction was complete in the heavenly places based on the individual's response to the truth that's presented to them. So in the conclusion, on the last verse here, which I briefly mentioned, he says, prescribe and teach these things. Doctors write prescriptions. Just because a doctor prescribes you something doesn't mean that you take it. I'm not, that's not an order. I'm just saying, I don't always take it. I, uh, this winter was terrible. I was sick from like December to February. And midway through, I realized that through my insurance, I could like phone a doctor and get a prescription because I'm like, just give me the medicine. I'm willing to try anything. So I call in and have this 30-second call with the doctor. The doctor basically rattles off all these, like the prescription that he was going to phone in. But I didn't quite capture all that he said. But I raced down to the the pharmacy and and the pharmacy said, okay, you're looking, you have three prescriptions here. I'm like, that sounds about right to me. I don't really know. And she said, do you need instructions over everything? I'm like, no, no, I'm good. That was a mistake because I figured it would be on the label. And so there was one that was antibiotics. Of course, I took it. Then there was some inhaler. Of course, I took that. It seemed to make sense to me. But then there were steroids. I started Googling steroids. I'm like, I don't want to do steroids. Five days go by. I start talking to some of the nurses at the church. They're like, Gunnar, you probably should have taken those steroids. But then I felt like it was too late. And so Paul says, prescribe these things. Teach them. Uh, you can't force people to do this, but a, passion, a, a, a pastor can be passionate about encouraging his congregation to pursue these things. The, 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 kind of going in reverse order to fix your hope on the living God. And the first question for everybody in this room is, do you know the gospel? The gospel is simple. Jesus came to earth. He lived the perfect life. He did not sin. He was arrested. He was beaten. He was executed on that cross. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 tells us that this was according to scriptures, that he was buried and then he rose again. That Jesus did this for us. 
in order to make this effective is that you take that truth and in your heart you believe. And at that moment of belief, we're told that you're saved. And so it's important that if you're here and you think you're a Christian or you don't think you're a Christian, to understand that a relationship with God is not based on works, it's based on belief, period. And if you're not saved, don't worry about the rest of the, like, like we, we so often get the cart before the horse and we, we think, well, I'm a sinner. Yeah, we're all sinners. And you feel guilt and conviction over your sin. And so naturally in this world, when we want to right wrongs that we've done, we begin to work towards restoration. And so we start doing things to fix the wrongs that we've done. But in a spiritual sense, that's backwards. The Bible makes it clear that God saves you. You're saved by faith alone, through grace alone. It's not for any works. And so if you try to start working your way to heaven, you're getting it all backwards. And so if you're not saved, just stop listening to me at this point. You you need to be confronted with the cross and either accept it or your default is to reject it. And for those of us who believed, we're challenged to live our lives for the one who saved us. It's not to earn salvation, it's because we've received salvation that we begin to live out the life that we've been given. So if you've trusted in Christ, the the prescription and teaching of this passage is to discipline yourself for taking God seriously. And I want to end with a question that I'm not going to answer. And the question is, is what can you do in your life this week to take God a little bit more seriously? Now, the answer could be twofold. It could be subtraction or addition. I've had both many times in my life. If I want to take God more seriously, there are some things that I can start doing today that demonstrate that I'll take him more seriously. There's been other times in my life that my taking God more seriously meant that I needed to subtract some things. I needed to stop doing some things to live my life in a way that was beneficial to me and pleasing to him. And I think that this process is ultimately discipleship, growing in our relationship with Christ. Uh, Eugene Peterson wrote a book, and I'm not endorsing the book because I I think I've only skimmed it, but I love the title. And he describes discipleship, that what he named his book, is a long obedience in the same direction. And I think that this is faithfulness to God. This is getting serious about God, that we put our hands to the plow and we say, Lord, you've given me this life. I want to grow little by little in my relationship with you. I want to grow in my faithfulness. I want to take you seriously. And it's not about a big show this week. It's, not a, it's about day by day over the course of the rest of our lives so that when we end our lives, we hear from him, well done, my good and faithful servant. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you We thank you for Christ. We thank you for grace. We thank you that our relationship with you, our restoration to you is not based on our works for we would never be able to complete the requirement. And so, Father, I pray for everyone here that you would guard our hearts from legalism, guard our hearts from trying to do things to please you, to do things to try to restore a relationship with you. Father, I pray that you would open our minds and hearts and lives to the truth of the gospel, that it's by grace 
that's out of your love for us, that you took care of the punishment in Christ. Lord, help us to believe. Help us to truly fix our hope, to stake our claims on you, the living God. Father, help us to get serious about living for you. Help us in our pursuit of godliness. We thank you for your patience. We thank you for your mercy. We thank you for our church family that helps us in this aim. Father, we pray for ourselves as a, as, a, as, a, as, a, as a congregation that you would help us to live lives that honor one another, that we would be there for one another in the ups and downs, that we would be a church filled with grace and kindness and gentleness as we uh, encourage one another of our pursuits towards you. And it's in Christ's good name we pray. Amen.